Howdy, Tonzilla Files. Another episode of Escaping the Cave, Tonzilla X Pod. EscapingTheCave.com, TonzillaX.com. You can hit me up at the Facebook page as well. Hope you're having a good one. This is two days in a row. Rains and pours. You enjoy these, though, right? Of course you do. What is this, episode number 83? Why am I asking you? Well, you've got it right there in front of you. You just click play, for Christ's sakes. You can tell me. Is it 83? Yeah? You are no help. Thanks. Why do I do this? June 19th, 2020. It's a Friday. It's a beautiful Friday. Spring here in Michigan, Southwest Michigan, has been fantastic. And some of the best weather I remember. Upper 70s, low to mid 80s, creeping up toward 90 today. Lots of sunshine. Haven't seen any rain in at least a week. Been out running, been out walking, been out riding my bike. I'm getting healthy. You know what I figured out? I was having a problem with, uh, <laughs> don't have too much fun with me when I say this, but with like relative uh, occasional confusion, right? You get older, you, you start to feel a little weird here and there. It's been going on for a little while. I usually accompanied by like lightheadedness and head rushes, things like that. I figured out a couple of weeks ago that I have not been drinking nearly enough water for years. Years. Exert too much effort. You know, walk it up a hill, right? You get kind of tunnel-visioned, a little lightheaded. I did a little online research and figured out I was probably drinking about a, a quarter of the amount of water that I need every day. I started doing that. I started tracking it a couple of weeks ago and drinking like a ton, ton. And I, I tell you, I felt 10 years younger immediately. Just simple water, man. Getting out, you know, getting the heart rate going. It's easier to do here in June, here in Michigan anyway, than it is in January or February when it's 20 degrees and wind blowing all over the place. But it's been great the last couple of weeks. So combined with that water thing and getting out and getting a little exercise, getting the heart rate elevated. I haven't felt this good in at least 10 years. I'm motivated. I want to go ride from Pittsburgh to D.C., literally. Woo! Got my eyeball on Mexico and South America. Got my foot problem taken care of. I had this nerve thing with my feet. Uh, Morton's neuroma. It's a runner's thing, but I think it also comes from carrying a backpack around for so long. Got that taken care of. I'm ready to attack shit now. Feel all testosterone-filled and stuff. So anyway, if you're a gentleman of a certain age, if that sounds familiar to you, drink more water. Drink a lot more water. Like a shitload. See if that helps. I hope it does. So how'd you like yesterday's episode? Was it fun? Did that make you as uncomfortable as it made me? Yeah, I sat here and thought about that for a minute before I released it while I was editing it. And actually after I finished it, before I started going back and re-listening to it. I thought it was worse than it actually was. But it's weird, isn't it? I didn't put anything in there that was that revolutionary or that controversial. I just had an honest conversation with you. But having an honest conversation with people, saying what you really think, is sort of a revolutionary act these days, isn't it? You get a little, I don't know, mm, you start wondering and start kind of, are people going to react to this the wrong way? Are they going to start saying that I said something that I'm really not saying? The one thing that stood out to me, it was a part about Thomas Jefferson saying that once the fra- uh, slaves were emancipated, that they should be sent out. And I've got visions of woke flake terror. Woke flake outrage. He's saying, send them all back. That's not what I'm saying at all. And you know it. If you go listen to it, it's not what I'm saying at all. I got this thing in my head, and I, I suspect a lot of you feel it too when you get, to get ready to go say something thoughtful but honest, but against one doctrine or the other. Like this little twitch. Like, ah, I don't want to deal with this because they're going to twist it. They're going to take it. They're going to... Thought crime. Speech crime. It's a side effect of the culture in which we live. I'm not going to talk too much more about that today, but the rest of this episode is going to touch on some of that. 
how people do not listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. They're sitting there waiting for something they can seize and grasp upon, waiting to talk, looking for something to use. That is not a conversation. That is not discourse. It's a lot of things. (laughs) It ain't discourse or conversation. That's trial by rhetorical combat. A couple things I did see today that'll tie into this as well. (laughs) Apparently Donald Trump took to Twitter. I think he shared, either shared or posted, outright posted. Can't remember. Whatever. Go find out for yourself. But he added to his Twitter account a doctored video taken from CNN with a, a manufactured fake cry on on top of it, completely taking the video out of context to his Twitter account. Doesn't surprise me with the first question I ask. Oh, great, great. Well, you've outed it. Does anybody care? Does anybody care that it was fake other than the people who are already howling, 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 howling against Donald Trump? Do the people that matter, the people who are actually going to vote for him, the people that support him, do they care? Will it change anything? Probably not. It's just fake news. They, they, they have the out. This is a real problem, man. When you tell people the truth, when people are bullshitting themselves or they've been bullshitted, they've been hit with disinformation or propaganda, whatever. When you tell them the truth, when you show it to them right in front of their face, they still won't accept it. They still will not alter the mental processes. Anthony Fauci came out and was talking about anti-scientific mentality, this anti-intellectual, anti-scientific mentality the country has as part of it. They will not alter their opinions, their worldview. They will not alter anything, even in the face of bald facts. The facts don't matter. It's the schema. It's the worldview. It's the pseudo-environment. That's all that matters. All that matters is maintaining that. In preparation of today's material, I decided to go off the reservation again. I wanted to go check on some people, some old friends, uh, some old debating partners, and people out the airlock, off into social media and matrix obscurity now. No incoming signal from them unless I go look for it. (laughs) Talked about that before, right? And I went to one guy's page. He's a, he's a conservative dude, Trump guy, gun guy. And his page, I haven't looked at it probably, I don't know, I haven't really scrolled through it in a couple of weeks, but I wanted to see the kind of stuff he was putting up there. Okay. And it's littered. I swear to God, it's littered with those warnings that Facebook's putting out about fake news, disinformation, mistruths. His page is littered with them. And he didn't take any of it down. It's still sitting there like he's proud of it. Look, I posted bullshit. (laughs) There's no shame. There's no shame in the fact that the stuff that you're posting, this pro-Trump, anti-Democrat, anti-socialist, anti-Biden stuff, anti-Clinton stuff, still Clinton stuff, is utter horseshit. You don't care. This is what I'm talking about. You can be shown that the stuff that you're spreading, the stuff that you're disseminating, it's horse shit and you don't care. Your fans don't care. Your followers don't care. It's ideologically faithful. It's loyal. Doesn't matter if it's true. Truth? <laughs> Who gives a shit about that? It fits the narrative. That's all I need. And you're telling me we don't have a country. It's entrenched in these religious minds. Yes, minds. Like the Middle East. Conflicting, combative, mutually exclusive religious minds. Arguing over which fantasy is reality. We are on a dangerous course here, my friends. This whole idea. Having a real conversation. Time to have a real conversation, America. It's all bullshit. It is all bullshit. That concept is dead. And I'm about to tell you why. Like the 
something happened, which unleashed the power of our imagination. We weren't the talk. There's a silence surrounding me. I can't seem to think straight. Pink Floyd's uh, Keep Talking, featuring Stephen Hawking. Yeah, that's him in there. What a great song. One of the few Floyd tunes that I played that I thought was underplayed. (laughs) There's a good message in there, though. That song was released, I forget it, either in the 70s or 80s. But either way, long time before social media was part of the zeitgeist. Zeitgeist? How do you pronounce that? Either way. So the guy in the... In the song, the protagonist, he's sitting there, he doesn't, he, he doesn't know what to say. He's off in a corner by himself. Literally today, in 2020, nobody has that problem unless they want it. We have these miniature broadcast devices. Literally. With global reach, instantaneous global reach sitting in our pockets. Anytime we feel like we have something to say whether it's thought out or not. We have the capability to reach anyone on the globe who's listening. I put forth and maintained the theory that social media accounts should be treated and regulated as broadcast devices, broadcast outlets with accountability. That may be another discussion here. But that's the power of the technology now. That's how far things have come since... Myself and probably most of you were children. We have the capacity to reach anyone we want at will. And unfortunately, the enlightened part of the species has not kept up with the species' reach and ability to touch base, influence, agitate anyone around the globe at will. So what I want to talk about today is that and how this ubiquitous reach in conjunction with data overload, data confusion, the loss of a tethering to an external truth has taken this trendy idea of real conversations, the ability to keep talking to each other, really talking to each other and obliterated it. There is next to no such thing as public discourse anymore. It's out the window. I don't care how many times Don Lemon says on CNN, it's time to have a real conversation about race. I don't care how many times he said it. I don't care how many times Brooke Baldwin belches it in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. It's dead. Have you noticed? These debates that we have on this virtual digital public square, I like to call the matrix, these debates, I'm doing the quotes thing here, they're not real. These are exhibitionist displays, puritanical, in-group loyalty. And they're fused with the exhibitionist performances of virtual retained attorneys. You and I, arguing before our gathered audiences. They're not intended, these debates, to find any kind of external truth on which to agree. They are battles waged to prove one combatant or the other to be victorious before the assembled crowd. The assembled crowd being the friends, the followers. If you're an influencer, the fans and other participants, other people jumping into the fray, it's rhetorical peacocking. 
arguing to prove the wit and the brilliance of the virtual attorney and not the truth of the side for which he argues. You have overburdened your argument with ostentatious erudition. My purpose is to show uh, that certain principles are eternal and that men of great minds have... (laughs) Why are you laughing? Through the ages, agreed on certain basic principles. A noble purpose, no doubt. But some of the jury might think that you want to prove the brilliance of the speaker rather than the truth of the case he is arguing. Well, perhaps in certain passages, a more direct line might be an improvement. Mm. The brilliance of the speaker before the truth of the argument. That's from John Adams, an old miniseries. I think it was on HBO. That was one of the very first things that I ever uploaded to YouTube. It's a great clip. It's a good reminder. What are you doing? Are you showing off for the audience? Showing off how smart you are? Is that your primary goal? Or is it to expose the truth of the argument you're making? It's an uncomfortable clip for me to listen to sometimes. (laughs) Really uncomfortable. Uh, But it's a good reminder. It's a good balancing act. It's a good way to kind of center yourself a little bit. Now, I played that clip not so much for the brilliance of the orator part of it. I sort of see where we are in the national discourse as being not so much trying to prove our brilliance, although that's certainly a factor, but I think it's how articulately we can express our puritanical loyalty to our team has nothing to do with where where the clip really sort of shines and crosses, I guess, the decade, decade and a half that it's been out in in the ethos, is that it has nothing to do with the truth of the argument. It's about the orator's faith. It's about the orator's articulation, his ability to re-articulate and repackage second-hand, third-hand, twelfth-hand doctrine. That is what public debate and public discourse has become. Proselytizing. Showing your own loyalty and your own familiarity with the adopted scripture. Being educated and informed is pretty much the equivalent of being able to recite biblical scripture in church. has nothing to do with the truth of the matter. It's about winning. And when I compare them to this John Adams clip, I'm telling you, I'm offering these would-be verbal gladiators the benefit of the doubt here. Really, I am, because the other possibility is that these folks are either idiots or Manchurian propagandists. They're out on maneuvers, out in cyberspace, patrolling the Matrix, and dropping their propaganda bombs. Now, by way of comparison, individual conversations, as opposed to these public debates, they bear so much more fruit for a reason. There's no audience for whom to perform. There's no status to be maintained, lost, or enhanced. In private conversations, most likely, respect and affection's already been previously established. That's why you're interacting one-on-one. The people they know and they like each other enough to speak privately individually, so neither are typically fighting to protect their status or their virtual persona's public identity, their standing. Once you add an audience, all that flies out the window. I have seen this a million times, but since I began sort of calling the herd, removing certain individuals from my virtual living room, not so much anymore. The most recent, I think, was last fall. And before this, this particular woke flake and I had had several introspective and insightful private chats over probably six years, man. But as soon as I crossed her ideologically secure boundaries, boundaries made more, I don't know, rigid, more firm by a few years of Donald Trump. Once I did that on my own profile, mind you, on my own profile, not hers, she could not resist proselytizing about militant feminism and white privilege. And she couldn't resist doing it where she could be seen preaching on the street corner before an infidel's audience. Mine. Personal honor suddenly came into play and her status as an enlightened and witty liberal crusader had to be protected. Social status, social momentum, blah, 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 blah. Boil it down, it became blood sport waged in the Coliseum. For all to see, who's going to win? 
And after enduring word-to-word combat for 11 years, it's not hard for me to sense where it's going. I kept my sword from those days, but I sharpened it often, so I indulged her. Indulged her in the egocentric, voyeuristic orgy until she finally and predictably purged herself. I didn't even have to do it. And to be honest with you, I should have just aborted her in the Holy War's first trimester. Late-term abortions are always bloody, right? In the bigger generalized picture, there is no side. Doing quotes again, no side to blame here. Both factions in this puritanical holy war partake. These echo chambers are filled with homogeneously thinking faithful. They're ready to pounce on any perceived heresy, blasphemy, or infidel behavior. And the ego's defenses kick in and save face before the gathered herd. The verbal blood sport begins. The retained attorneys don their fancy rhetorical suits, take to the virtual stand, only to re-articulate someone else's threadbare arguments. Uh, Wash, rinse, repeat. This happens everywhere. Twitter is the zenith. Facebook's notorious in that regard as well because of the gathered jury. The target's actually meant to hear, indulge, and presumably judge the winner. These trials by rhetorical combat, they're often actual friends, people you know, people one of the combatants know, or perhaps, in certain cases, I've seen this a lot, both of you know them. And it's like a, like a fight in the schoolyard back in high school. Who's going to win? It becomes some bizarre battle for social media cred. Hallway status. I don't need to explain too much of this because we've all seen it. We've all experienced it. And it can be defined as many things. Discussion, conversation, and discourse, however, are not among those things. And one of the things I find most annoying is that these pro bono attorneys, these free attorneys, these retained free attorneys, are almost always rephrasing second, third, fifteenth-hand rhetorical fuckery. Rarely are any of their points and rebuttals. Rarely are they insightful, original, or even semi-thought-out in the first person. They're hacked up like ideological hairballs. It's useless to engage any of this, but sadly, sadly, it's the standard method of social media debate. That's what's passing. That's what what you're engaged in 80% of the time, 90% of the time when you engage in a social media debate. If it doesn't start out that way most of the time, Tell me if I'm wrong. Most of the time it descends into that if you are not locked and sealed inside an ideological echo chamber. If you're not locked in the church discussing the ideology or the theology with the faithful. As soon as an infidel makes its way in there and starts preaching some other God's scripture, holy war. Worse than that, this particular symptom of the social media disease is rapidly spreading into the real world as the first generation that's been raised on these platforms completely unaware of life without it as they swerve, stumble, and stagger into adulthood. There's no, quote, real conversation taking place. Just public proclamations of group righteousness and denouncements of both scapegoats and generalized out-group evil. This is the psychology of insurgency, of manufactured agitation propaganda, whose machinery is designed to hijack and destabilize a population from within. I have a whole series on this from last year. Whether the source is foreign or domestic, it does not matter. The effects are what matter, and the effects are exactly the same. I don't want to go on a foreign disinformation tangent here, so I won't. But I will say this. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that our source is primarily domestic. We'll assume that for just a second. How much easier is it for outside actors, outside agitators, to exploit social media and exploit that internal internal agitation as opposed to having to manufacture and then trigger it and then fuel it from outside all by themselves. It's infinitely, it's already here. It's already in place. Just throw gas on it, man. It boils down to as simple. It's not them. It's us. 
We are responsible. Now, in my not-so-humble opinion, you have to be a fucking idiot to either indulge or invite further participation in this shit. But bilateral agitation is both the Facebook and electronic media engagement model. It is. You know it, I know it. It's obvious. It's clear. Activist, agitation media. You know, putting the ideological slop in the trough, as I like to talk about, so the cattle can go feed, can go reinforce their faith. Of course, it's the business model because it works. And it works because self-righteous agitation appeals to countless innate and primal, primal urges. People love it. Exploiting that has made the likes of Zuckerberg billionaires. And they've done it at our obliviously drunken expense. Now, I'm convinced that as we now approach a full generation of social media use, going back to MySpace and all that, this is greatly contributing to our growing inability to engage in meaningful public discourse. The digital echo chambers and mutually exclusive tribes calcified in thought by years of puritanical tribe reinforcement, these things are manifesting themselves in the real world. The flesh and blood world, man. The main difference is that the memes are scribbled on signs now. They're broadcast, not by Facebook or Twitter, quite often, but via graffiti, television cameras, ACAB. I kept seeing that sign at the protest. I had to go look it up. All cops are bastards. Where did that start, the ACAB thing? Was it a hashtag? Was it a meme? They all heard about it. Now they've taken the meme from the Matrix into the desert of the real. And these Twitter-style shout-downs. We've all seen this. They're being brought to a college campus or a town hall meeting somewhere near you. I am both afraid and convinced that these online trials by rhetorical combat will increasingly seep into the public square and deteriorate eventually into physical violence. It's already started. How many times, how many stories have you seen about people ramming cars into crowds? I think the symptoms, the early symptoms, the early indications of that and what that's going to become, I think they're already there. I'm not going to give you a timeline. I'm not literally Totstradamus, but I think those are the early indications of this. Rampant vandalism, that's already started tearing down George Washington statues now. (laughs) Spray painting their posts upon them. Random acts of conflict. Premeditated attacks. I think it's all coming. I think it's going to move beyond the textual, texting, typing, and the verbal ring. Coming to a desert of the real near you. I'll tell you, that line right there, oh, that speaks to me. It's not why I'm playing this, though. It's Queensryche. Check out the hook.
I've never been much of an album guy. I think that was from Empire, though, right? Anybody listening? We have a listening crisis. As a lot of people are wont to remind us periodically, but it goes both ways. I decided to dig that out because I've got one more segment that actually talks about listening. And as I said, there is a listening crisis going on right now. Everybody's talking. Everybody is waiting to talk, waiting to have their voices heard. And not a single damn person seems to be listening to anything anyone else is saying. And when I say listening, I mean really listening. And this boils down, it it comes all the way down to the individual interactions we have with each other. I've noticed this for a long time. I've participated in this admittedly. But somebody pointed it out to me, and it helped. So I am going to suggest this to you and see if it applies. If it doesn't, feel free to discard it, but you're going to notice it, I promise you. And people are actually trying to discuss things in person face-to-face, with their actual voices as opposed to their ferocious fingertips. It's nearly impossible for them not to talk over the other person. Have you noticed this? It's made me wonder if we've gotten so used to text communication that we've begun skimming voice interactions, skimming them, looking for things to verbally post. It's an established fact. It's been studied. People rarely read and thoughtfully process Full articles online. Full anything online. They skim it for useful parts, and then they move on. Horizontal thinking. Horizontal surfing. As opposed to vertical. Digging deep into the subject matter. Skim and bounce. Skim and bounce. Skim and bounce. That's why you so often see these articles that have bullet points decorating the top of the page. People want the crux of it. They'll skim it anyway, so put the bullet points at the top. That's why you rarely see anything longer than a few hundred words. Short and impatient attention spans attached to informational foragers hunting specific useful, useful content, especially among those looking for recycled bullets to shoot in combat or recycled scripture to reinforce their congregation's faith. This is what we call online research. I'm doing my research on the internet. Are you? Is that what you're doing? Usually not, I dare say. I'm daring to say a lot these days. Personally, I think we've mutated. I think we brought that online trait into our personal interactions. Constantly hear it. I constantly hear people talking over the other person before they've had a chance to finish their thought. During these supposed acts of enlightening dialogue, each party is only listening up to the point where they either think of or find something to use. Sitting impatiently while waiting to talk. That's the key, waiting to talk. Sitting impatiently, listening, integrating what the other person has to say, it appears to be to most people an intolerable act. And it happens everywhere. All you have to do is pay attention and look for it, even perhaps, especially in yourselves. I admit it right now, freely, I was once notorious for doing this. I thought I was being passionately outspoken. (laughs) Not quite. And I I admit, I I still struggle with it from time to time. Every now and then, I have to quietly paralyze my own jaw to keep from cutting somebody off. That self-awareness has really, I mean, it's made me hyper-aware of how ubiquitous this cancer to understanding the other person has become. As I said, the seed was driven home accidentally, but it happened in two parts. Okay, first, someone pointed it out, thankfully, gently, (laughs) (laughs) But once the defensiveness and the rationalizations and all that died down, I became aware of it. Even if I didn't want to be, I knew it was there, and I paid attention. And then sometime after that, I took an improv class in Chicago. Now, improv is comedy, but it's not like stand-up. Its fundamental is not built on be funny. One of the foundations of successful improv is the rule of agreement. You never hear an improviser contradict their partner's premise, right? The biggest cornerstone, however, and the one thing they drive into your head from day one is listening. 
listening to your skit mate, whatever they call it, skit mate. <laughs> it sounds like Gilligan. Taking in what your partner's saying and building upon it to craft a successful scene. Taking that class, I realized how poorly I listened. It's embarrassing. It was embarrassing. I never finished the course, nor did I ever take a real stage. I had my moments, you know, where I could kind of be amusing and funny and plugged in. But to be honest, I sucked. Terrible. Because when I was taking part in these training exercises, I realized how poorly, how poorly I listened. I was always locked inside my own mind, thinking how I could be clever or worse, how I could be funny. How I could be intentionally funny. I wasn't paying attention to anything else going on around me. Just like maybe a half an eye in the periphery paying attention to what was going on. The rest of the time, I was sitting in my own head, worried about what I would do rather than being plugged in with the cast. I was sitting there waiting to talk rather than participating with those in the scene. I can't prove it. I can't. Just a theory, but I'd bet my car to your donut that this mentality is endemic, endemic amongst social media's avatars. You know, everybody knows what reading comprehension is, right? But I also wonder how this inability or refusal, whichever it is, to really listen to the other person has eroded our verbal comprehension skills as we sit locked inside of our own minds, plotting our little retorts as we impatiently just sit there and wait to talk. There is much more to this. There's much, 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 much more to this. But that's an interesting and ominous thought, isn't it? That we cannot decipher the meaning or patiently sit out and wait to understand what the other person is saying before we decide we need to interject something. We have lost verbal comprehension. I don't know if we've lost it or just blocked it. Either way, it's really a problem. I don't know if it's, if it's a lost skill or just a refusal to engage that part of the mind. But uh, something's going on there. I think that dog's going to hunt. Now, as I said, waiting to talk, rudely cutting people off after failing to listen to much of what they said... It was and is something I was first made aware of that existed in myself. It happens a lot. A lot of things I see in myself that I didn't realize were there, I start to notice in other people, and vice versa. Uh, once it was pointed out, though, even after that, it still flares up, particularly, particularly when I'm pissed off and agitated. But before it was pointed out, hardly ever noticed it, hardly ever thought about it. Then, I got my hands on The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. And it began making a whole lot more sense. Marshall McLuhan's classic book, Understanding Media, helped as well. We are rewiring our own minds via neuroplasticity. Habits. New habits of informational gathering. New quirks of conversation. Habits and quirks that are not conducive to civil cooperation and authentic and genuine understanding. Then again, maybe we don't want to understand, right? Maybe we just want to win. Maybe we're simply indulging the primate's innate urge to impose, dominate, control. I think that's uncomfortably close to the scraping away the thin veneer reality we may be living in. It's always been a horrific path for the questionably evolved apes to hike, and I believe we may, may, may be seeing the symptoms of it once again. I'm not sure if it's the cause or the effect. It could be both, each perpetuating the other, but much of this may possibly lie in the combative and consistent puritanism infecting our untethered-from-external-truth ideological cults. As usual, this is not black and white. There's no magical spell that's going to end this. I'm not going to come out and have these, these magical words that are going to make this go away. The switch is always internal. You have got to do it. As it comes with curating your, you know, your informational ecosystem, all the data coming in, this is all up to you. I can't do it. You have to do this. We collectively have to do this. Individually. Or we're not going to remain a free society. It's as simple as that. But again, it's not black and white. I've said myself, 
that I'm not going to listen, listen to retained hack attorneys arguing their ideological client's case any more than I'm going to listen to a resurrection sermon in an evangelical church. It's proven to be a waste of time. I anticipate their arguments because I know and have heard their positions for 10 years. I've heard these arguments in different iterations, in different packaging a million times. I don't care how the firebrand preacher repackages and rearticulates it. I'm not buying that the zombie messiah literally woke up and pranced forth from his cave. Nor am I going to be convinced by the magical powers of rearticulation that the gender voice in your head serves as a permission slip for boys to join girls' track teams. Nor are you going to magically hypnotize me into believing that the innocent until proven guilty standard does not apply to men simply because someone created a hip little hashtag. In each of these cases, I know the proselytes are retained as advocating attorneys or preachers. They're not seeking anything. They're not looking for anything other than the means to impose their beliefs upon me. This morning, sitting at the computer, sorting all this stuff out, it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, maybe I'm not alone here. Maybe this rings, maybe this has sort of an element of familiarity. Do you, do you, do you smell something familiar in there? I wonder. Because maybe we've become so immersed in ubiquitous, repackaged, yet homogenous, partisan hackery, that we simply listen for the first indications, shut down, and then begin preparing our own rebuttal. That could be the case. If so, let's admit it. Let's just get it out in the open. Let's admit it and kill any silly notions of real conversations or discourse. If that's where we are, then we really are metaphorical apes swinging verbal sticks at each other in a collective headlong rush towards literal, literal, proper-use tribal warfare. A lot of this is not new. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote about it in the mid-1800s, for crying out loud. But with social media... It's been exponentially worsened and unleashed globally. Again, this cannot end well with no gatekeeping adults moderating the chaos. Maybe you disagree. Show me your work. You can convince me. Sure, I'm looking for an exit ramp off this dystopian freeway. I'll take it if you can show it to me. (laughs) Make it good. Where is it? I'll say it for the hundredth time. People who lack or have lost the means to tell truth from falsehood do not remain free. Why does not matter? And tyrants come in all sorts of shapes, sizes, and ideologies. They're triggered by all sorts of things. Demagogues love chaos. They love exploiting people who are desperate for answers, desperate to cling on to anything. That will explain a chaotic world for them. This has been one of the most beneficial parts of reading about the Great Depression, reading about World War I. There's a lot of similarities between the times we're living in now and the first 30 years of the 20th century. And it's not coincidental that the tyrants, the despots, the fascists, the communists, Father Coughlin, you ever heard of him? Oh, he's right up there in Royal Oak. Firebrand radio preacher. Holy shit. He had millions and millions of millions of listeners listening to his bat shittery on the radio because he offered answers. He offered solutions or <laughs> supposed solutions. Bullshit or not, people want that stability. This is the danger of the times in which we live. I talked about chaos yesterday. This is the most chaotic time I've ever seen in my life. You're probably feeling the same thing. But this is the time you have got to strive to be sober, strive to be clear. Strive to protect yourself from manipulation because the demagogues are going to be out there. They're going to be looking to exploit any kind of uncertainty. 
And in order to do that, it may be that we have to stop listening to the media and start listening to each other. I haven't done it on purpose. I have gone, though, on sort of a media boycott lately. I very rarely, rarely turn the television on anymore unless it's to watch The Office or Netflix. I'll flip over to one of the news channels just to see the blurb on the headline to make sure, you know, terrorist attack didn't happen or something like that. And I'll go to CNN.com quite a bit because I love mocking them. They're like the research project of the Internet. But beyond that, I am not getting any of my data and information, my workable information from the media. I think I'm versed enough. I think I know what's going on. I don't need to keep up like the current events man in Alul's book. And maybe we need to do that as a collective society instead of getting our information and getting our worldview implanted, inseminated into our minds and our souls by an electronic for-profit media looking to exploit division and agitation. Maybe we ought to just sit down and start talking to each other. But not in, in some fashion where we're just waiting to post and talk over each other and impose, impose and control the other person's mind, impose our will upon them. That's what crusading is. Imposing a religion upon an unwilling population. And we have to learn to talk to each other. But beyond that, we already know how to talk to each other. And learn to listen to each other. And actually listen. Listen to what's happening. Listen to the information that's coming. And first, speak honestly. Don't speak from a religious point of view. I've already covered why. If you're only out there preaching God's holy word, go away. I'm not going to have a discussion with Ken Ham about evolution. That's the category that I put you in. But the rest of you, if your identity is infused and attached completely to either one of these ideological cults or religions, talk to somebody else who has a different viewpoint than you and listen. Take the point, let it sit into your mind and process. Actually consider it. Don't look at it as a personal attack upon your identity. The one thing that got me, as I wind this down, back in, I think, 2017, I was already headed away from uh, the liberal doctrine camp, the resistance, or what was becoming the resistance. At that point in time, I knew that I was leaving that camp, and I bought Hillbilly Elegy. Vance was the guy's name, I think. He wrote a book, and he's, you know, he grew up in, like, uh, West Virginia or Kentucky or something like that, and I read this book. And actually considered it. He wasn't really, you know, defending rednecks so much as he was explaining what they go through, the lifestyle they live, what they believe, why they may believe it. And it rang real true to me. It, re it reminded me of something that happened to me in 2009 when I went back to my hometown for the first time in like 12 years. I saw with my own eyes how people were struggling, how they were living. I had some genuine conversations, face-to-face -face conversations with people and realized these people aren't as bad as I may, perhaps I've been making them out to be, or definitely how bad my cohorts have been making them out to be. I saw the empty businesses. I saw the empty factories. I saw people actually engaging in bartering, bartering services because the jobs had dried up in 2009. Most of those never came back. Anyway, when I read that book, it decalcified the liberal doctrine I had been basking in. Just a little bit, just enough to allow it to crack and allow it to be slowly swept away. I can start seeing with my own eyes again. Questionable results here and there. I slip constantly. I'm human. I get agitated. I get sucked into stuff just like everybody else. But I attribute reading that book to opening up that eyeball that I once had, that I had purposely closed. And it was because of the ability to listen to what the guy was saying. He was speaking honestly, and I was actually listening honestly. This happens so many other times. Hitchhiking has been a fantastic resource for this. I can't give that to you. I don't expect you to go out and hitchhike. <laughs> But being exposed to these folks, sitting in the car with them, talked about this man getting in the car and being one-to-one, -one, alone. 
asking the right questions, and taking the time to really sit there quietly and listen to what they have to say. It offers you another perspective. It gives you another stroke of paint on the mural. It's priceless. I've run into so many people like that, and I, I think what I'm going to do with the, uh, the Facebook page, at least in the short term, I've met so many great people doing that, so many good people. I know part of my problem here, part of my problem is I have seen the good side of people. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've seen the light of this human duality as opposed to this black side over here that I'm constantly dwelling on. I know people are better than this. I've seen it. But I can't... Don't understand. Yes, I do. I do understand. But what I'm going to do with the Facebook page, methinks, is I'm going to start posting some of these stories of the people. It's going to pretty much get me out of the narrative of these old travel posts of mine because I'm talking about somebody else. It's not going to be, then I slept on a train or then I slept in a cornfield. None of that shit. It's usually just people that I've talked to, and I'm talking about these people and these conversations that we've had and the insights that they have graciously given me. I may start throwing those up on the Facebook page just to kind of remind both myself and other people of the decency that resides buried beneath this bullshit. And encourage people to channel it. Go find it in yourselves. Because that's the only thing that's going to give us any semblance of hope. Any semblance of hope has got to come from us. And the ability to be able to communicate with each other as countrymen, again, to see ourselves as one instead of these factionalized little tribes whose special interests are the only ones that matter. We can't survive like that. You just can't. And in this environment, with this kind of technology, this ability to stoke agitation and rage and turn people against people, no way. It is the people. The problem is us. Therefore, we are the solution. I got my Jefferson book. It's huge. Came two days late. Haven't dug through it yet to see if the uh, Thomas Jefferson st- or the uh, the quotes on slavery are in there, but I will find them. That's a sweet book too. Library of America stuff. If you're an Amazon junkie like me, it's good stuff. Great books, high quality books. Find them pretty cheap. So this was actually uh, devised this morning. This was not part of the stack. <laughs> so I think I've got a good week. Maybe two weeks worth of material here that I can do pretty regularly. Whether or not I do, that remains to be seen. But I hope so. EscapingTheCave.com is the website. ToddZillaX.com is the other website. The travel stuff where you can find those stories about those great people that I met hitchhiking. You'll say hi on the Facebook page if you like. Anything else? Hey, the voice held out a little bit better today. That's good. I'm going to go ride a bike again. Thank you ever so much for clicking in and listening. Till next time, so long. So long.